My name is uh, Gary Brock, and uh, my wife and I uh, work with an organization called uh, Christian Missionary Fellowship. Uh, we spent 30 years uh, working in, in Africa, mostly Kenya, a little bit Ethiopia. Then we helped teams get set up uh, in other countries uh, as well. Uh, for the last five years, uh, we've been working out of our office in the United States. Um, I'm the director of uh, Urban Poor Outreach and Marketplace Ministries, uh, which means we're helping teams get set up in Asia as well as Africa. But the first part of our work in Africa was in very much... Uh, Want to try that? Are we working now? Is that okay? All right. We'll try that. Okay. Uh, the first number of years that we worked in Africa, we were working in uh, rural areas and uh, primarily doing some uh, church planning and evangelism and uh, uh, leadership training, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, we did some holistic ministry, but as our former uh, director and my good friend uh, Mick Smith said, at those times our practice was better than our theology. You know, I wanted to preach and teach. That's what I was trained to do. And I kind of, we did the school thing. We helped start schools. We helped start a clinic uh, in our area, um, mainly because I got tired of sewing people up and knowing I'd probably be sued in the U.S. if I did a sewing job like that on somebody. But the local people were happy. And we got the clinic started. But, you know, as I look back in time, thinking about all of my good, culturally relevant sermons in the local language, with proper proverbs and, and that kind of thing, thinking about how God might have uh, used me to bring people to himself. It wasn't those times at all. It was the times where in the middle of the night somebody would hammer on my door and we'd uh, go to the door and find a guy who said, hey, come help. Uh, my wife went to the clinic today. She got some medicine. She went home. She took it all at once instead of over a week. And so we'd spend the night trying to, to, to help feeling kind of helpless, again, because we're not medical people. Or when we picked a drunk up from alongside the road and took him home, kind of not too happy about it, wasting our time going out of the way. But those were the times when we looked back and said, wow, in some small way, maybe God used me to help that person come to know him. So, more wiring. So we, we began a journey learning about holistic ministry and really what God had in mind uh, when it came to Okay, we learned some about holistic ministry. And I'm still learning about technology. (laughs) 
So uh, uh, we learned more about what we feel has been biblical in terms of what God has intended uh, for people to come to know him and uh, about holistic ministry uh, flowing out of Jesus' uh, words in in Luke uh, chapter 4, where he made his inaugural address, so to speak, uh, talking about setting the captives free, healing the sick, uh, proclaiming the good news and good news to the poor, and bringing about the kingdom in all of its aspects. And so slowly we began to learn a little bit more about uh, what maybe holistic ministry is about. And at the same time, as I was traveling to help teams get set up in rural areas, I had to go through African cities, big cities, to get to those rural areas. And every time I would go, I would see the slum areas had expanded on my way from the airport into town. Look at that. There's another slum that just broke out in that area. What happened there? You know, where, why aren't people doing anything about that? You know, where are the Baptists? They have money. Why aren't they fixing that? You know, our work's out in the rural areas, but somebody ought to be doing something. Well, God was slowly um, bringing something about that uh, uh, we weren't aware of. And a few years later, our organization, our board, uh, did some looking at the world, kind of saying, where are things at? Where are things going? What would God want us to be involved in uh, as we go forward into the, the next century? And one of those areas was outreach to the poor in urban areas, because they also saw those slum areas. And that has happened. Somewhere, sometime, in the last few years, we crossed a tipping point. And in our world, more people are now living in urban urban areas than rural areas. And the rate of that happening is going like this, just going up tremendously. Our cities are getting bigger and bigger. And as that migration from the rural areas to the urban areas is taking place, you can guess where the people moving into the cities end up. It's not in the suburbs, and it's not in the rich areas of town, but it's in whole cities and sections uh, where people are living in abject poverty. Mostly because people come in, they they want jobs, they don't have very much uh, in terms of resources, and so they go where they can survive. Many times they get to the cities and they find there's already a hundred or a thousand people ahead of me applying for those jobs, and I don't have half the skills that those other people do, so I don't get the jobs. So these cities are just mushrooming. And uh, the United Nations estimates that somewhere after uh, 2040, not that many years from now, um, that those slum areas are going to be the dominant uh, figures in our society. The World Bank is saying there's going to be riots, there's going to be problems, and they have that in their reports saying these are going to be the problem areas, all these massive slum areas that are developing in our world, and it's happening more and more every day. If you go through those great cities in Africa, um, there's still new slum areas that pop up just overnight in uh, tremendous uh, numbers. And it's not just because of a a lack of jobs. Um, The current famine in uh, East Africa 
I mean, that drives people to the cities. And uh, lack of jobs drives people to the cities. Uh, kids, the population explosion. Kids are living these days. And as the slowly as the, the farm areas get divided up, you know, among ten kids pretty soon, there's not enough land for children to make a living on the old family farm. So it creates a lot of problems in these cities. And as people move into the cities, um, they come in. Many times they don't know people. They might try and congregate in an area of uh, a slum where there are people from their ethnic group, but still they're strangers. They don't know people. But as they come together in this great mass of humanity, there are some common things uh, that people find. Now, what do you think? I want to ask uh, you some questions this morning. What do you think some characteristics of life in one of these impoverished areas might be? Just go ahead, name one. Don't think too hard about this, just off the top of your head. Poor sanitation. Poor sanitation. Yeah. Poor sanitation or no sanitation. Uh, just, you know, uh, raw sewage floating around. Uh, overcrowding. Uh, we heard earlier um, Andy Warren from Ethiopia uh, saying, you know, there's massive number of people living in an area the size of an SUV. I've never heard it quite described that way before. I thought that was interesting. But, yeah, a little 10 by 10 houses with maybe 10, 15 people uh, living in them. What was another one? Disease. All kinds of diseases that we normally would think of that are preventable. Uh, from, you know, intestinal parasite type things to upper respiratory uh, diseases that are there, um, worms, uh, just cholera, typhoid, um, malaria, everything you could imagine, just all kinds of diseases. What else? Drugs. There are a lot of uh, drug problems, uh, alcohol uh, problems uh, in the area, uh, Oftentimes, there's a lot of prostitution in the area. I mean, it comes down to the end of a, the day, and a mother has five kids, a single mom. They're all hungry, uh, you know, grabbing at her dress, saying, I want something to eat. The easiest solution is to holler at the guy across the street, hey, come buy me a soda. And one thing leads to another, and then she's able to feed her children. What else? Violence. There's a lot of violence uh, for a lot of reasons, a lot of frustration. Uh, people get desperate. Again, you know, a man feeling bad, can't feed his family, comes to the end of the day, sees somebody walking home that has something that might help him feed his family, he's going to get it. A man gets frustrated because he can't feed his family, he goes home, he gets drunk, and he beats up his wife and children. Just a ton of violence. Uh, in these areas. That also leads to something else, uh, leads to a kind of a culture of fear. Uh, many times at night, people are in by dark and they bolt themselves into their houses. They don't want to be out uh, because they know there's bad things out there and no good can come from being uh, out and wandering around too much in uh, those kind of situations. What else? Right. Yeah. Terrible fires. These houses are so packed together, just 
thousands and thousands right by each other, built out of you know cardboard, uh, maybe wood, scraps of wood, uh, tin. And once a fire starts, it goes. And guess what? Even if there was a fire truck, there can't get anywhere near where the fire is. Uh, and so it just wipes out whole sections uh, overnight. What else? Hunger and malnutrition. Um, I lived in rural areas for a lot of years, and there were times where I thought, where I was living in those rural areas, that, yeah, there's a lot of poor people here. But I didn't see anything like the hunger and malnutrition that I saw when we first started wandering Kibera and Mathari and uh, Cape Town and Johannesburg and some other places where we had a chance to visit. Uh, the malnutrition was just stunning. What people are living with all the time in the slums are what it's like during famine times in rural areas. Uh, it was just amazing to see uh, people living in these conditions. Okay, what else? A lot of exploitation. Uh, the poor are very vulnerable. Uh, they don't have any power. Many times they lack the knowledge of how to function in the city. If they come from a rural area, uh, they don't know the systems. They don't know where they can get help. They don't know what their rights are. They're afraid. They're intimidated. If a poor person shows up to a city municipality to say, we don't have water in our community, guess what's going to happen? They'll probably get thrown out at the best or, you know, chased away. Um, nothing's going to happen. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of exploitation. Then somebody with a bright idea who has a little money, maybe the person working for the water department who says, hey, these people are asking for water. Here's a chance for me to get ahead. So they begin selling the water that should have been the right of the people uh, in the first place. And so somebody's getting rich at the expense of uh, people, again, who don't, don't have anything. And neighbor will exploit neighbor. Uh, all it takes is, you know, getting ahead a little bit and getting control of, uh, uh, you know, those resources. Uh, the last time I was with a short-term team uh, in Nairobi, we were uh, going in with a short-term team to work on a, a school, a partner school with uh, the church that I attend. And we got a call, don't come in. Why? Because the local people had had enough of the city council people withholding water and charging them exorbitant rates to get. And they said, this is it. We're not paying anymore. So they simply knocked a hole in the pipes and were getting their water that should have been there right in the first place. And uh, the county council people saw their uh, salaries uh, disappearing or their extra income. And so they fought back. Uh, so we, for that day, didn't, didn't go on into uh, uh, Mathari. What else? Kind of along with the exploitation thing, the, one of the things that happens uh, uh, pretty frequently in, in most slums is the development of gangs or somebody to control uh, what goes on. And I remember one time, one of the most frightening times when I was new, wandering the slums. I was still totally out of my element. Uh, I was standing getting ready to uh, teach uh, or preach at a revival meeting, and they started pointing out to me, see that guy over there? Uh, he controls all the heroin in this area. And see that guy, that guy, that guy in those hats? They're his thugs. 
And see that lady over there? She's getting her girls ready for the evening. And see those guys sitting over there? They control all the marijuana trade. And see the guys with their little jugs? They're going over the, the hill to get the white lightning. That group is down there. And there was kind of a you know, balance of power that went on. And everybody was controlled by these kind of four gangs. Uh, they basically ran the community. Um, gangs can break down into ethnic forms. Every five years in Kenya, it breaks down that way when election time comes. Um, but other times, then there's other forces at work. And you'll find uh, people of every ethnic group uh, participating in one of the other uh, groups that are, are running things uh, in the area. So there's many commonalities uh, in a poor community or in po impoverished uh, communities that draw people together, but they don't always lend themselves to creating a strong community. Usually they create a fearful community, a dysfunctional community, and a community really that lacks hope. Now, make no mistake, there's a survival instinct in human beings that is there. And people are very resilient. But relationships don't work. Um, people aren't able to live as God intended them to live. And it's just a, a real breakdown in society. So that's led us to think about what do you do? I mean, after living out in, in rural Maasai land in Kenya and Tanzania for many years, you know, coming across a community of a million people in kind of one and a half square miles was kind of intimidating. I remember one of the first days after I wandered around in uh, Kibera, I went back home and told my wife, I said, what do you do? Where do you even start? Um, it just looks impossible. But uh, slowly we learned from some of our Kenyan friends in, in churches uh, that yes, there is a way to begin. And it begins with relationships. I'm using a, a little form up here this morning that uh, comes is taken out of a book called When Helping Hurts. But this model has been around for a long time. It, other people have used this in different forms for, for many years. And again, our Kenyan friends and churches helped us see that this is where it has to begin. The reason nothing works here is because the relationships are totally messed up. And of course, the first one is man's relationship with God. When God created the world, he made it beautiful, set up a beautiful garden, and things worked. But we all know what happened. Sin got loose. And once sin got loose in the world, everything was messed up. The relationships right from the beginning. Um, Adam's relationship with God wasn't good. Adam tried to hide from God. He ran, hid behind the banana trees or, or something. Um, didn't want to show up uh, when God came around. Man's relationship was messed up with his wife, his kids. Um, Adam's understanding of who he was uh, was messed up. And so relationships are the things that don't work or are non-existent. It is possible for somebody to be living in the midst of those massive slums uh, in those big cities and still just not relate to anybody around them. People are terrified. Uh, we've seen families who, who are living in just total fear. They don't know anybody. They don't trust anybody. 
Maybe when they did open up and start to trust somebody, they got exploited or their money stolen. And so they just are living in isolation in the midst of a million people. It's a stunning thing to see. But once those relationships begin to be repaired, then there's the basis of beginning uh, to share Christ's love. And, of course, again, that first relationship is man being restored to God. And we heard last night, I don't need to say more about this, uh, we heard Nathan talk about the blood of Jesus that makes that possible, uh, that covers our broken relationships with God. And it begins to put the basis for everything else into place. And then man's relationship and understanding of himself. Uh, many of the people have terribly poor self-images who live in these impoverished communities. When you begin talking to them, you start to hear, man, these people have skills. They have gifts. They have abilities. But they, they're, they're missing it. They bought into Satan's lie that they're not good enough, that they can't do it, and that somebody better than them, who God loves, has to come in from the outside and help them because they can't, can't do it. And so once the light goes on, people get their relationship right with God, then they can begin understanding, wow, God has given me some gifts. He has given me abilities. Uh, he has given me the capability to begin doing some things. The other thing that happens then is relationships with the neighbors can begin to improve. Once a person's self-image begins to improve and they begin to understand who they are in Christ, then they can begin sharing with their neighbors and coming together to work on a problem. And it doesn't have to be a, a big problem. It can be a small one. Um, it can be as, as small as saying, hey, our kids are getting mugged going to school. Do you think it would be possible for us to, to take turns uh, walking our kids to school and just cooperating, you know, helping, helping each other out? So one, we don't always have to be the one late to work every day uh, because we're trading off as a parents group. Just a little thing. And it can begin to instill confidence in people that, yes, we can do something. And then, of course, man's relationship with everything else in the world, uh, with all of creation, with the environment. Um, man, do you think our kids are sick because we're throwing our trash out here and they're playing and eating out of that trash pile every day? Maybe if we got rid of that trash, they'd be a little bit healthier. And slowly that can begin to develop and uh, relationships can begin to be strengthened, and then people can slowly begin to work on bigger problems and things that take more effort on the part of the community and that may be beyond the strength and abilities of one person but are not beyond the abilities and strengths of a community. And so relationships are key. Um, anytime you get these massive groups come together, uh, that are coming together very rapidly, uh, where there is no community. Um, without those relationships, things just aren't going to work. One of the other things that happened uh, uh, when I started wandering the slums of uh, Nairobi, Mathare, Kibera, and uh, Kalanguare, and Kangemi, and some of the others, 
I would see these buildings or projects that were sitting there, and I'd ask the people, what, what is this? Well, there were some people that came, and they started this, and we had a, a reading club for our kids for a while, and they were getting some vitamins and things, and then one day they didn't come anymore. And just project after project was like that. Uh, some of them said, well, this started out, we think, to be a clinic, but we're not quite sure what it was, but it's not there anymore, so you know, we just ignore it. And many times, you know, people came in with good intentions. They wanted to help. They wanted to do something. But there was no community involvement at all. Uh, just simply somebody seeing, probably rightfully, what was a problem and wanting to come in and fix it. But without that local involvement, without that local ownership, um, it wasn't going to work and was collapsed. And that was another intimidating thing. I, you know, Again, I, I talked to people and said, I could stand at a church or any one project in Kibera and throw a rock and probably hit another project or church, and I don't have that strong an arm. And it was, it was just amazing to see and to ponder. But again, as I talked and learned again from a lot of my Kenyan friends, um, one of the problems with some of these things was people from the outside came and tried to do things without local involvement. So one of the critical things is local relationships, helping people know who they can become in Christ, who God created them to be, and little by little, as that light goes on, you can actually see the hope in people's eyes. It's cautious at first. Is this really true? Can I really do this? But as it begins to happen and it builds, the confidence builds and the community builds, and from there, people are able to uh, take a little bit more control of their lives and allow God to create the community that he wanted in the beginning when he created the garden. Okay. Any, any questions or comments at this point? Yes. Have you actually seen this model? Like, has it worked? It has. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. And I've got a couple of, of things that, at the end here that um, I'll show you. So we're coming to that. Uh, but, yeah, it was a long process. And uh, we actually have seen some things. We're still learning. I would never want anybody to... Uh, you know, think that I'm presenting, uh, this is the model, the only answer. But I have seen it happen, and it's given me enough hope and encouragement that I've seen it happen in enough places uh, that we're, we're making, making steps. But let's talk a little bit now about what would good health look like. What is, if, if we're going to have a healthy community, this is a Global Missions Health Conference, what is good health? Good nutrition. That's a part of it. What else? Safe water. Safe housing. What else? Hygiene. 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 Just general good hygiene. Yes. What else? Healthy relationships. Healthy relationships. All right. Somebody heard my first point. Okay. <laughs> Healthy relationships. What else? 
Yes, acceptance of those that are marginalized, you know, even in a, 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 an impoverished, slum, poor area. There are still those within, you'd, you'd look at it and say, well, everybody here is marginalized. But within the marginalized, there's categories of marginalized and some that are pushed out farther to the edge than others and even more cut off and discriminated against, uh, sometimes deliberately, sometimes just uh, maybe not so deliberately, but there are those who are, are even more discriminated against. Well, I think one of the things uh, you've all hit on this point, good health is very holistic. It includes all of us, physical, spiritual, social, uh, relational. If transformation is going to take place, it needs to take place in a holistic manner. One of the things I've learned over the years, slowly I admit, but is this whole concept of holistic health. That what's going on with me physically can affect what's going on with me spiritually, mentally, socially, in my relationships. You can't take it apart. As Americans, sometimes I think we fall into that trap. Now, I learned this and a lot of this in the rural areas in Africa. I mentioned that we had tried to help start a clinic in our area. Uh, it was four hours drive uh, to the nearest hospital over roads that weren't very nice. And I didn't like to, to drive there. So we were helping the community to uh, uh, start a, a clinic. Well, we had a doctor who would come and visit once a month. And when he'd leave, he would leave some follow-up things for us to do. This person's going to come on this day. Here's the medicine we want you to give them uh, just to be sure they're doing okay. Well, that led to other things, people coming up. I mentioned the little boy who got rolled by the buffalo while he was out uh, uh, watching his cows, and I you know, looked at the cut that was over his eye, thinking, ah, a four-hour drive, or should I try and do this? Well, I went ahead, tried to sew him up, got you know, stitched down to the end. Here was a big lump of skin. I just said, ah, we don't need this. Cut it off. That little kid has a huge, ugly scar there. I would have been sued anywhere. To him, it's a badge of honor. See this? This is where I got rolled by the buffalo when I was protecting my cows. He's a hero, so that one worked out. But one of the things I learned in the process was this. I knew when people came for medicine, you know, I was a preacher. I should pray with these people. So they'd come, and I could give them some aspirin for the pain. Yeah, I see you have a bruise. I see you have a cut. Here's a Band-Aid. We'll help you that way, but let me pray with you for God to heal you, for him to make you feel better. And we did that. But as we got done, I thought, what else is there? I prayed with you, prayed for you. You know, in the name of Jesus, I gave you medicine, the best that I had. Why are you still sitting here talking to me? Well, you know, uh, this year really has kind of been a good year for us. Uh, uh, my cows are all fat. Um, my wives are, are doing well. I have three new children. Um, Everything is going good. Yes. Uh, but, you know, because I'm getting so many cows and, and I'm having children, this neighbor over here I think was jealous, and I think he put a curse on me, and that's why I fell and hurt my leg. And so what can you help me to do to get rid of this curse that's caused me this problem on my leg, and now my, the rest of my family is getting sick? Whoa. I didn't know what to do with that at first. 
But we gradually started praying and learning that holistic health really is all tied and integrated together. Uh, You can't take one piece out and treat it apart from the others. And this gave us a tremendous advantage when we started in in the slums with this whole complex system uh, that was put together. Uh, At least I had a clue. Okay, we can't just treat the water issue separately from the security issue, separate from the spiritual issue, separate from the social issues. They're all tied up together, and they all work together uh, little by little, uh, slowly. And again, it begins with local people uh, beginning to discover who they are in Christ, beginning to identify what they want to work on, and making those steps. Uh, For the sake of time, let's move on quickly. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail on community health evangelism or CHE. There are other seminars here who've introduced this whole topic on their own. But we like this because it's a good set of biblical principles uh, that are holistic, that help us begin uh, ministering to the whole person. This is supposed to be a water tower. We're going to put the legs on it this morning. Uh, By talking just a little bit about some of the principles uh, that are behind community health evangelism. First of all, the premise is we're working on development, not relief. There are times we have to do uh, relief. When disasters come, we have to respond or more lives will be lost. But in general, that needs to transition into development as quickly as possible. Or even a well-planned out relief program can take in mind the next steps to long-term development. Development helps people, again, discover who they are in Christ, put their gifts and abilities together, and begin using them. We are committed to mature Christian leadership because we don't think any development program is complete uh, without the gospel. And there have even been secular anthropologists who look at development programs and honestly say, hey, they're better when the spiritual element is there. Uh, A professor from Harvard Uh, evaluated a program in Malawi and looked at it and said, the Christian ones are better, and he's an atheist. He said, look at it honestly. They're working. Uh, Multiplication. We want to see one person begin to catch the vision, pass it to another one. Once the community catches it, pass it on to another. Um, Integration of physical, spiritual. I've already talked about this. Uh, Sustainable. We want to see programs that will be ongoing, lasting, not die when outside help is pulled away. Uh, Teaching, not doing. Prevention versus cure. Uh, We do curative medicine. We help people set up clinics, but many diseases can be prevented. A lot of what goes on in the slums... um, or lack of vaccinations, and people just don't know that they need to get these for their children, or they can get them, and most of the time they're free and can prevent a lot of the childhood diseases. Uh, Community ownership is critical. I just want to say one thing about sustainability and community ownership, and this is something I just learned during this last year. The two don't always go together. I was in Asia. This wasn't in Africa, but as I thought about it, it's happened there as well. 
we were looking at a project that was trying to help orphans and vulnerable children who were either at risk of being trafficked or sold or who had been and had been rescued. Kids that had been sold either as laborers or into the sex trade. There was a group from the West who'd come and helped set up uh, some fish ponds and uh, some uh, other things, raising plants hydroponically. It was, it was really a good thing. The local people in this Asian country were excited because they saw what was happening. They saw the first crop of fish coming. They saw the plants coming. They said, wow, we've got to get ready. We have to put our sign up telling people in a week you can come buy fish and we can buy clothes for the children. Uh, we can make the repairs that we needed. And, and it was an exciting time. But immediately when the donor heard that that was a the plan, they said, no, this is only for food for the children. And if anything's used any other way, we'll shut the project down. The light just went off in those local people. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. It had just been taken out of their hands. So here was a program that it could be sustainable, but there's no local ownership. There's no local buy-in. All the creativity that God had put in those people for finding local solutions was just, it was gone. And that was a wake-up call for me saying, wow, there can be sustainability with no local ownership, and it can still undermine the whole program. So again, it's back to seeing who people are in Christ. Now, how does this work practically? Uh, again, I'm going to go over this quickly. Uh, you can find out a whole lot more about CHE on, on the website uh, under the Global CHE Network or LifeWind uh, International or uh, Neighborhood Transformation. But there's a training team of Christian people, either from inside or outside the community, who begin working to mobilize doesn't have to be with a lot of fancy surveys, although you can do good baseline surveys and everything else. But a lot of it is walking around, burning the shoe leather, drinking tea, listening to people saying, what's going on here? Pretty soon you hear five people saying the same thing. Then you can say, let's get together and talk about the fact that none of your kids are in school. What can you do about it? So you can begin talking, getting the community together, helping them to come up with a local solution. Eventually, they can form a committee uh, who can choose some local CHE workers, community health evangelists, to begin going door-to-door. Um, again, we're going quickly. Usually, this starts small with a seed project to get people together, uh, picking up trash, uh, digging just a ditch uh, to drain water, out of a community, so there's no malaria, typhoid, cholera. Small thing, and people say, wow, look what we did. Probably the, the most striking example of this was in a community called Kangemi in Nairobi, where there's this big ravine right down the middle of a community, about 10 feet deep and 20 feet wide. People couldn't get across that. When it rained, it filled up. People would fall in. The solution, people would put a log across. But again, when it rained, it was slick. You could walk around two kilometers, but nobody wanted to do that. Well, the community decided they wanted to fix that. As they sat around and talked, everybody complained about it. But one day, as they talked, they decided, okay, we can do this. Well, we deliberately went late uh, to this project. And, uh, you know, we didn't want to uh, interfere. We thought maybe they'd be started. We got there. 
We thought the Golden Gate Bridge had just been completed. People were dancing on this bridge. They were cheering. And it was just more another wooden pole with some slats put across it and a little railing. But that galvanized that community. That was their bridge. And they had done it together. The landlords had been suspicious of the tenants. Are you guys trying to revolt against us? The tenants were afraid of the landlords of being oppressed. The Christians were afraid of the non-Christians. The Muslims were afraid of everybody. Um, it was just it just brought everybody together, and they were able to begin uh, building on bigger projects and bigger issues in their community. So it starts slow, but it builds one step at a time, little by little, until a community becomes uh, strong. So again. Um, the training team helps oversee this project from the very beginning. They don't do things. They help the community to do things. They're there as a resource, uh, do a lot of teaching, a lot of training, a lot of mobilizing. And uh, to quickly get to uh, uh, you know, the point of what this can look like, there's a community that begins working. People begin to discover who they are in Christ. Uh, they begin to work on spiritual needs. They might work on schools, microenterprise. Everything is integrated. Integrated in, in a way that supports every other piece of the project until pretty soon there's a strong uh, community uh, that is emerging and developing uh, in these areas. The project that we have been involved with uh, most recently is in the Mathari Valley in Nairobi. Uh, Started with our partner, Mary Kamau, and Missions of Hope uh, around the year 2000. She took a few kids, again, heard people complaining, our kids aren't in school, so she helped them. Uh, they got a little tin building, had a few kids in school, and it's grown uh, from there. Um, Mary used the school to form a parents' committee that eventually became a community committee. And here's how that, that worked. She got the parents involved. They cared about their kids. They'd given up on themselves, but they cared about their kids. So as they got the school started, she said, okay, you have the school, but all your kids are sick. They can't learn well. Do you think it could be this garbage pile? And what can you do about it? Okay, get rid of it. Same with the sewage. Get rid of it. Okay, now your kids are all getting mugged going to school. Why is that happening? You know, this is your community. Um, take care of it. So they did. And little by little, uh, that committee became the community committee. Um, you know, the youth, they were the ones doing the mugging of the little kids. What do they need? Well, they need jobs. Okay, let's help create jobs for these youth. So they began collecting the trash, charging just a little bit uh, to each person and carrying the trash out each week. With the money they made, they started a community center uh, they got a loan to buy a TV during the last World Cup uh, soccer tournament and charged people to come watch. And they made a lot of money uh, on that. And so there's a whole youth community now that is positive toward their uh, area. They also passed a rule in their community. There will be no more robbing in our community. If you want to rob and steal, you do it in that community. I mean, it was a step. And uh, you can see people you know, coming back. After a night of robbing, they're coming back home. But uh, it's a step, and it's spread. It's gone from one area of Mathari, which the government has divided into ten administrative sections, 
800,000 people is too many to administer. So now there's 10, about 80,000 communities. And it's gone from one area to the other. One day, Area 2 looked up and said, why do those kids have school uniforms? As a matter of fact, why can we even see those kids? Because the garbage pile is gone. Usually we couldn't see Community 1. Why is that sewage running down you know, into the, the river? It's not piling up in their community. And so it spread from one community to the other, as people saw. Pretty soon they'd be rushing their kids over. We want to put them in school. Well, this school is kind of full here, but if you want a school in your community, let's talk about it. And so it spread from one end of that valley to the other. So today, instead of one little church, there's six with 2,300 in attendance, three teaching points, again from the community health evangelists going out, not only teaching on health, I mean physical health, but spiritual health. Uh, it's gone wild. Um, today there's about 5,500 children in 13 schools, uh, four big uh, support groups for people living with AIDS, about 600 people in those uh, groups, uh, six fully functioning CHE committees, which means those communities are really red hot and, and rolling. Uh, and others coming along. And there's about 1,100 people who've gotten loans uh, to start small businesses. And again, all of these things are interrelated. Elizabeth, single mother, two children, has a job, no longer has to be a prostitute. Her kids are in school. They're well because the community is cleaned up. They're not sick all the time. She gets the support of a church group. She sings in the choir. Uh, her self-esteem has gone up. She can actually do something. Uh, but she has her business as well. Her kids are in school. Uh, the spiritual is there. It's an integrated whole that's going on in this community. No one thing uh, would be able to help like it has when this integrated program is in place. So anyway, we're, we're out of time. Uh, this has gone fast this morning. But if there's a question or two, I'd be glad to try and answer. Or talk to you later. Yes? Uh, you know, I noticed you had child sponsorship on there. Can you define what Well, one of the things that happened about five years into the program is we met uh, Mary Kamau at Missions of Hope. And we began sitting and talking with her about, you know, the community and the problems. And we really went to her to learn from her. Because <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing and we said, teach us. So she did. Well, one of the things that big problems in the community was helping people um, get their kids into school. But she could only expand at a certain rate uh, because of funding and other issues. So we have partnered churches in the United States with a community in Mathari, and that church has done child sponsorship as part of the program uh, to help those schools come up and be strong. And so kids are being sponsored in those schools with funds uh, from the U.S. Now, one of the things that people say is, well, that's not all local resources, and it's right. But there is a place for outside funding. And there's four questions I ask as to whether the outside help is a problem or inappropriate. And the first is, who thought of the idea to do this project? Was it the local people or... Was it somebody from the outside? Second is who initiated the project? Many times Westerners will hear about a need 
and we'll jump in and we'll do it. And the local people say, what just happened? Uh, well, you said this was a problem and we fixed it. That doesn't work either. Third is who is actually running the project now? Is it locally owned? Uh, do the people take ownership of this? And are they driving it? And are they operating it? Or is it foreigners, somebody from outside? And the fourth critical question I like to ask is, if all of the foreign funds were withdrawn today, would this project survive in some form? might be ugly if a lot of money was withdrawn suddenly. But if it will survive, then there's a good chance saying, yeah, these funds are helping do a good, good thing. And uh, those schools are locally owned. Uh, they belong to the people, uh, not Missions of Hope, not CMF. Those schools are local schools, and they will keep going, even without the funds. But the funds do help uh, tremendously. So are salaries being paid by outside? Or uh, both. Okay. It's a combination. People are asked to pay some as much as they can. And especially as people get jobs from the microfinance thing, then they're asked to pay more. And so there's, there's some of both, but some of the funding helps. Okay, I, feel free to go ahead, but if you want to come and talk some more, I'll be glad to visit uh, some more with you individually. But I know there's other places we all need to be.